0: this morning's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 28, starting reading at verse 16, and you can find it on page 1000 in the church Bibles. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, Thank you, Roz. Um, Let's pray before I I start. Father God, we just pray that you open up this scripture passage of the Great Commission to us all now, and you give me words of truth and love this morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on purpose, because of course today is Trinity Sunday. So here we go. Oh boy, one of those mysteries that is very difficult to understand, but I'm going to give it a shot. Somebody told me not to, but I'm going to give it a go. So there we go. I'm going to start with um, a little cartoon that I saw a few years ago uh, of a school teacher and a pupil. And the school teacher is there, it's an RE teacher, and he's saying, now you're sure you've got this Christianity all sorted out, Foster? You know what's what's what? To which Foster replies, I'm a little bit hazy about the Trinity, sir. To which the school teacher replies, three in one, one in three, perfectly straightforward. Any more questions? Go and see your maths tutor. <laughs> now, Foster's probably not the only one who is confused and mystified by the concept of the Trinity, because it is notoriously difficult, it is notoriously mysterious, not to say mystifying. But the root of Trinity Sunday, which we celebrate today, goes back to Thomas Beckett, back when he was Archbishop of Canterbury, who decided that one Sunday every year should be devoted to this doctrine because back then he was horrified by how little was understood about it. Not sure if it's done the trick especially when you look in the guidebook to Fountains Abbey over Ripon Way, where it says this. Here in the chapter house, the monks gathered every Sunday to hear a sermon from the abbot, except on Trinity Sunday, owing to the difficulty of the subject. (laughs) And I wonder how many clergy today would follow a similar view. How many priests today would be delegating the Trinity Sunday Sermon to their curates. Hopefully we're a bit more open to looking at it than the monks were back then, so we're going to have a go at wrestling with it a bit more this morning with this passage from Matthew's Gospel. Now, I love the way that the Bible account of the life of Jesus doesn't cover up the mistakes, doesn't cover up the weaknesses of his followers and his close friends. There's something almost reassuring in the way that they got things wrong and the way that they had doubts. It seems that throughout their three years of intensive training with Jesus, the 12 disciples bumbled, stumbled, generally made a mess of it all. They often didn't know what to say. They got it wrong. They got it all mixed up. And even after Jesus rose from the dead where we find ourselves in this part, the end of Matthew's gospel, the Bible says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Still, after all they've been through over the last three years, there's still some doubt there. The Bible doesn't even attempt to suggest that the followers of Jesus had some kind of blind faith. No, the Bible's clear that Jesus' followers struggled to understand who he was and what his mission was. So if you can't quite work out what the Trinity is all about, or if you don't understand why God showed up as a person in a baby, or if the death and resurrection of Jesus still leaves you mystified, or if events in Manchester and London over recent weeks leave you with more questions and doubts than answers, you're in good company because his first disciples were just the same. So what's the response to these doubts? What's the response to these questions? Well, as Jesus stood on a mountainside with his disciples after his resurrection from the dead, and as some of them doubted and worshipped him at the same time, Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Last time I was here, part of our service was dedicated to the Mother's Union. And as I remembered this, it set me thinking about the relationship between God and Jesus, that father and son, God as a parent. And I thought about the number of parents that we have here at St. Stephen's, because on that morning there's quite a few um, mums and one honorary mum who stood up to be welcomed into that mother's union. We've got all sorts of people here this morning, but one thing we do have is a lot of parents. For some of you, your children are long grown up, but you have the experience of being a parent. So what? What about those who've not been parents? Well, bear with me and it should become clear where this thought is going, I hope. Hopefully every parent lives their life for another. Now I know, and this comes with a health warning, that some relationships between parents and children are not what they should be with our earthly parents. I've experienced that myself. But we do have a heavenly father that we can rely on. And I know that it's not always the case that a parent lives their life for another, but when it does work, surely this is what church is meant to be like. I mean, after all, most parents live their life for another in lots of different ways. There's the excruciating pain of labor, which I've not experienced myself, but I've been told four times how painful it is, and I've possibly still got aches and pains from at least two of them. The broken sleep... Sorry, I'm in trouble now. (laughs) Because I didn't tell I was going to say that. The broken sleep that you wake as you wake to feed your baby or change their nappy. The massively reduced social life. Think how much you used to do before you had children as to when you do have children. Your entire day structured around things like school drop-off or school pick-up or being Dad's taxi and taking them to music lessons or dance lessons or other things or visiting friends that live miles away and should just be around the corner. Sorry, am I sounding too bitter? (laughs) Sorry. Spending time thinking about what's best for him or her. Every parent hopefully lives their life for another. Now, of course, not all of us in this church are parents. Some are too young. Some have made the choice not to be. But there's other forms of self-sacrifice as well. And the parents can be an inspiration to the rest of us. We need to put this into practice, this living our life for another into a different context. Every parent exists not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of their children when they get it right. We need to learn more and more to exist not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of our non-members within this community. Former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, who's got a school just up the road named after him, Put it like this, the church is the only society that exists solely for the benefit of its non-members. I'm not sure that's quite right, but church is definitely one of them. We should be here to benefit our non-members. Of course, it's easy for me to stand here and romanticize being a parent. There's times when every parent, myself included, has thought I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Do I have to, especially when it's the middle of the night at two in the morning and you're having your sleep broken because one of them needs the potty again? Well, because of love, you still do these things. And as a church as well, there'll frequently be times when we'll sit here and we'll think, oh, do we have to do this? Do we have to do that? Do I have to... But as Christians, for the love of God and for the love of those that are around us who haven't yet come to faith especially, but as well for those sat here this morning, we'll do what God wants us to do for them. Now in our passage that we had this morning, the final instruction of Jesus is that great commission. It was to make disciples from every nation, men, women, and children living like Jesus. Because I believe that Jesus wants a world where the outcast is brought in, where the poor are fed, where love and forgiveness and peace defeats evil, where life is honored, where life is valued, not wasted by the actions of a few, where people and communities live together in peace, live together in love, live together side by side. Jesus wants a world of truth. Jesus wants a world of justice where we stand up against injustice, where human trafficking is ended, where children are safe to learn, to live, to play, to enjoy the love of their parents. That's the kind of world that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit wants, and that's the kind of world that I want as well. Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It's because God, who is one, has revealed himself as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit. God has revealed himself to be Heavenly Father. That's why we start the Lord's Prayer by saying, Our Father in Heaven. And whether we've had a good relationship or not with our earthly father, God can be trusted to do the right thing as our heavenly father. God can be trusted to always be faithful. God can be trusted as our heavenly father to always be true. God has revealed himself as a son. Because God didn't send someone else to die on the cross on our behalf. He came himself. He came as an obedient son, Jesus, showing us the full extent of God's love, showing us what God is really like. We need to listen to Jesus all the time. We need to learn from Jesus. We need to live like Jesus. And that way we get to know God properly. We get to know God a little bit more each time. And then God reveals himself through the Holy Spirit, sent into the world to bring comfort, to bring wisdom, to bring knowledge, sent to bring the healing power of Jesus to you and to me. And so that's why we've just, minutes ago, declared our faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, in the name of a God who has revealed himself as a trinity but it's still a mystery. If we call the Trinity a mystery, then to me that means there's always something new for us to learn about what it means for God to be three in one. We can't fully begin to understand it, but we can never finish trying to understand it. The more more we learn about the Trinity, the more there is still to learn. We can never finish understanding the Trinity, but we can start to wrestle with the concept. And for me, it's a very simple one. It's the concept of love. Belief in God as a Trinity enables us to say that God is love. And how much do we need that these days with what we see in the news? If God were simply one... Then he might be loving, but he wouldn't be love. He might love us, but he wouldn't be love in himself. And we draw the map of God something like this. Owen, can I just borrow you a second? Just to hold this up. So we've got God at the top, loving us down below. That was if God isn't a trinity. Instead, if God is part of a trinity, Gareth, get ready, because I'm going to borrow you as well. If God is three, as well as one, then our map might change to this. Where God loves the Son, the Son loves God. The Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son. The Spirit, God loves God, God loves God loves the spirit, and we are right in the middle of that, surrounded by love. God is not only loving, he is love. Because there is, and always has been, and will always be a giving and receiving of love within his very being. It's not dependent on the world to, to provide him with something to love. Instead, all three parts have each other to love that dynamic of love is who God has always been and he's not one working alone like this one he's three working together so finally comes the challenge this morning what about you what about us where are we in relation to God? Do we still have doubts like Jesus' disciples doubted? Because if if we have, he can handle that. Do we want to live in a world that works the way that Jesus wants it to work? Are we ready to get to know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Are we ready to answer that call, that final commission of Jesus that we heard in our Gospel reading to make disciples, to go out there and seek others. But most importantly, are we ready to follow the example of of this Trinity triangle and show love and peace to a world that, let's face it, so desperately needs it? Amen.